You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. A big question for anyone putting together a theology is, oddly enough, are all people really God's children? You might be surprised to find out that this question is much more controversial than you might imagine. Fortunately, we have with us today Jonathan Mitchell with his extensive Greek language background and Nick Hughes with his missionary background to help us discuss this question. So welcome back, Jonathan and Nick, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you, David. It's sure good to be here. And Nick, it's sure good to meet you. Yeah, thanks, David. Jonathan, great to meet you, too. Looking forward to today's discussion. Yes, well, me I thought, too. I thought it'd be interesting to get our three different perspectives on this. I, I kind of come at my experience was being in ministry, just in the local setting. Uh, Nick, you have the experience of being on the mission field. And Jonathan, you have the experience of, of apparently living in the ancient world. Yeah. Uh, well, that's what ancient Somehow. people do. <laughs> you spend more time than most people thinking about words in their ancient context. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. Okay. Yeah. So, so since you're the elder state, the elder statesman of this group, <laughs> I thought that what we would do is we would just uh, sort of go through some questions, uh, some some scriptures that have to do with this. I think that that uh, that sort of on the positive side, that whether or not all people are God's children. For me, this is an important question because one of my core convictions is that God has a loving parental relationship with every person. And so then within that would be the understanding that, okay, well then God must consider all people to be children. So that's, uh, I guess that's why it's, in, 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 this is an important discussion uh, for me. I don't know, uh, is this is this an important discussion that has come up uh, for you guys before? Or is this uh, something that's come up in, in, your, in your backgrounds? Well, I'll say, yes, it, it, it is important for me, very important. And, um, but it came up in my thing, in my teaching, whatever, having been in Christianity most all of my life, um, I had come to just, this was an assumption. And so coming across people that didn't, didn't have this view was kind of different. And so uh, with your bringing this up, I thought it was a good time to really look at some scriptures, which... Uh, prompted me to to say, okay, uh, there's challenges to my belief. Let's let's take a look at this and let the spirit and the scriptures kind of clarify the issue a little better for us. Okay. What about Nick? you, Nick? Has this question come up uh, previously for you? Yeah, so perhaps unlike Jonathan, um, for me, uh, as one who comes from an evangelical background and one who had quite a few Calvinist friends, I, I tended to lean more toward the side of um, believing that all were not God's children. I certainly never let go that he loved all. Um, but for me, the delineation started forming when I when I was spending a lot of time with a Calvinist friend. 
And we were actually working with a, a Mormon who, um, as you guys know, the LDS, they, they hold to this belief. And so, um, but since I've come into a, an understanding of ultimate reconciliation, this was definitely one of the, the focus points or one of the main drivers that kind of led me to ultimately conclude that God would be all in all and that he was reconciling all to himself. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely had its place uh, in my background in, in at least two major ways. All right. Well, let's. Uh, what I like to say is, um, as far as this this question about whether or not all people are God's children, what I what I've said to people is, what my goal. Let, let me just let my first goal to be to to say that I think that I have a leg to stand on here. I may not be able to answer every every question about the scripture scriptures that you raise, but let me just say that 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 I do think I have some scripture to point to, if I want to as a Christian. Uh, make the claim that I believe that that all people are God's children. So let's just start there with trying to establish that I might least have at least have a leg to stand on scripturally if I wanted to make the case that that I believe that all people are God's children. So let's just start going through some um, some Bible verses. And Jonathan, why don't you lead the way? And then after you lead that verse, I'll see Nick if you have anything to say or if anything I have to add. So why don't you sure. kick it off, Jonathan? Thank you very much, David. You know, first of all, um, just understand that the term fatherhood or father signifies in some sense, whether literally as we know it in, in um, humanity or in a metaphorical sense that we'll come across in some scriptures that we'll cover, uh, a man that has, a father is somebody, a man in this situation that has children. And so a child could be, would be that person uh, that makes a, a somebody else, a man, a father or a source. God being a father, as, as we see all the way through both the Old Testament and New Testament, of people being, and people being his children, there's a real, although figurative sense. Um, and so this is what we need to, to look at. The question that came to my mind when I started, when you brought this question up, David, was when did God become a father of human beings? And the thought that came to me, and which I will put forth here, was, well, the first human being was Adam, as we see in Genesis, and God blew into his breath, uh, the, into his nostrils, a breath of life. So in, in a sense of not we don't see a giving birth there. We see a forming. A lot of people will say, well, uh, mankind is created, you know, in God's image, but they're not all children. Um, but in, in the sense of him becoming a living being or a living soul, Adam was basically the son of God. In the Gospel of Luke, if we look at the genealogy, and genealogies are very important to in the um, – Old Testament and Hebrew scriptures, the uh, Jewish religions. Jo Joseph's in, in Luke. Joseph's uh, was and traces his genealogy all the way back, or is his genealogy is traced back to Adam. Where in, in Luke three thirty eight, uh, just breaking in there, we add add the word the son of Enos or Enosh, the son of Seth. And son of God, son of Adam, son of God. Now, following uh, Joseph in verse 23, 
the last part of verse 38 is, is a genitive case there that can mean belonging to or from. An alternate rendering would be um, uh, whose source is Adam. And uh, I mean, whose source is God? Pardon? Uh, Whose source source is God? God. I'm sorry. Yes, correct. Thank you. And uh, or this in the genitive of apposition, this could read Adam, who is God, in the sense of of like begets like, and so forth. Uh, But um, the last that last function indicates a continuity that we see all the way through both the genealogy here in Luke and in Matthew, who traces it back to Abraham instead of Adam. So we observe that just as Luke viewed all the names in his list as being born from the uh, from the succeeding names, um, we find that Adam was considered to be born of God, that is, had God as his father. If we turn Luke's genealogy on its head, we have everyone in the list being children or descendants of God. With God being understood as spirit, as we find in John 4.24, it is easily understood why the author of the book of Hebrews refers to God as the father of spirits in chapter 12.9, whose context is speaking about people needing to be in subjection to God. Remember, it was God's spirit or breath that gave birth to Adam becoming a living being. Um, Okay. Okay. Well, thanks for getting us started off there. Uh, Nick, do you have anything to add to that? You know, I I wasn't sure when to interject at this point, but I love what Jonathan brings up, you know, this this whole concept of genealogy and um, spirit. Um, When we were in France, it became pretty clear to us that... um, that it was a post-Christian nation, right? That we, we of course, have learned about that in school, and, and st- statistically, we see that. And I'll never forget. Every day, I would pick up my kids from French school, and myself and uh, another friend of mine, who were Americans, uh, American Christians, I might add, we waited in this mass of uh, parents, this crowd of parents, every day around three thirty, and. Um, I'll just never forget um, kind of observing from afar, just these people interacting with each other, conversing, um, some smoking, some um, maybe looking a little a little shady or, or whatever have you, uh, just all fairly normal people across the spectrum of humanity. And, um, you know, I just would never forget the moment when the kids were released, right? So they opened the gates uh, and the parents come in and, and you see all these uh, reunions, right? Kids come in, coming into their parents' arm and embrace and um, just the love that would come over each of these parents' faces and the joy. Um, and, you know, in the back of my mind, knowing that most of them, statistically speaking, again, would not probably be Christians, would be considered a Christian in which um, many in our faith believe that, you know, Sonship only comes through professing and believing in Jesus's name and his work, salvific work on the cross. But I just remember thinking this is this is interesting, right? We have Matthew chapter seven, nine through eleven that talks about, and Jonathan, I think this is in your notes. But you know, verse nine: Would any of you who are fathers give your son a stone when he asks for bread, or yes. would you give him a snake when he asks for a fish? Bad as you are, you know how to give good things to your children. 
how much more then will your father in heaven give good things to to those who ask him. So he, as Jonathan might cover here in a bit, I mean, he's speaking to a crowd in which there are many that we would consider not followers of Jesus or not um, in, if you will, at that time, of course. And yet he's making this parallel, this uh, look, just like you are fathers to your children and you give good things to your children, how much more will I, as your father, give good things to you who ask? And so I just saw that. I saw that played out in real life uh, with these French people. And I saw um, that inherently, without even them probably knowing it, they were imitating their own father and being a father or, mo- or a mother to their own kids. And so that's that's always stuck out to me, especially as I was wrestling with ultimate reconciliation at that point and, and, and really starting to shed some of the traditional doctrines of hell that I had really bought into. Um, does that make sense, uh, David and Jonathan? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What I'd like to do is add something. I got to looking um, at this and I was looking through uh, uh, Andrew Horonich in his in his book, uh, Once Loved, Always Loved, The Logic of Apocatastasis, has a section on the uh, fatherhood of God. And he Mm -hmm. makes this following note about Luke three. So I thought I'd just share this. Uh, He says, uh, uh, Luke 3 shed some light on this issue in terms of uh, delineating the genealogy of Christ. In a rather impressive listing, Luke manages to tie Jesus' ancestry back all the way to Adam. But notice the progression in the final verse, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam was the son of whom? God. Thus in Adam, we are all children or descendants of God. Man is God's child and his sin consists of continually acting as if this were not so. Hmm. The idea rests essentially on the communication of life to the child by the parent. Paternity is for us largely blind and instinctive, but creation is love acting freely, divinely, knowing all the consequences, assuming all the responsibility involved in the very act of creating a reasonable, immortal spirit. It seems then very strange to seek to escape the consequences of the lesser obligation by admitting one still greater to seek in a word to evade the results of a divine universal fatherhood by pleading that God is only the creator. And uh, that may have been a quote from Thomas uh, Allen because he was, uh, Hronish was, was, uh, was referring to Allen in that, in that section. But what, whether it was uh, Hronish who said that or Allen, the, I really like the idea that for human beings, sometimes parenthood is quite accidental. I mean, the number yeah. of people, the number of people who really sit down and who think through every single thing that could possibly happen before making the decision, you know, to have a child is probably not, not, not very many uh, that do that. But the idea of God as a creator who knows the end from the beginning, who is in a way the ultimate parent who 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 creates a world and then puts his children into it knowing the end from the beginning for that that to me is the ultimate the act of parenting because you're giving you're giving your you're giving of yourself to these beings who you're creating in your image and you know from the beginning about each one of them what their ultimate end would be yeah so if you're a good parent, 
in then then in life in the life that you would give would be a good gift well then every good parent gives the best life that they can give and if god is the ultimate creator who knows the end from the beginning then the the giving of life itself to children would seem to need to be ultimately a good gift that would ultimately reflect the goodness of of the creator of the creator and the parent so i just like that uh that, that sometimes people uh, try to say as um, well that God is only the creator and not and not the parent as if as if creator was a lesser uh, category where the, where as I would think that creator would be almost a greater category because it would entail far more responsibility than a human parent who cannot control all the things that ultimately happen to a child within their within their earthly life. I lo- I love that David and. That that is so well put, and um, Nick, I, I really love the what you brought out. I was planning on hitting that verse, and so I'm sure glad you did uh, about you who are fathers. All of this ties in with what I was later going to bring out, but I think right here is a good place. John three sixteen, for God's in this way, thus God loves the world. The word world, there's cosmos. It can refer to basically the aggregate of mankind. God loves the aggregate of mankind. Or if you, like you just brought out as far as the creation, David, he loves the entire cosmos. I mean, we, we find where uh, Jesus says a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground mm. apart from the Father. It's like, can you get a picture of this, folks? You know, uh, just I think in a lot of people, when we've been trained in certain doctrines, we say, oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it all seems right. And a lot of people never stop. And I'm David, I'm so glad that you brought this subject to the table because we need to, we all need to really think through this thing and the implications of what these broad scriptures are saying. God so loves the world, the aggregate of humanity. That was the whole thing that he gave his son to us. You know, mm. my goodness, what <laughs> that that is. Both of you, what you both brought out, excellent. Thank you. All right, well, lead us into a few more uh, verses for us to consider along okay, these lines. Well, the next, the next, uh, to me, such a classic verse because it's obvious that the audience is non-Christian, non-Jewish. It's in Athens. They're, they're Hellenistic philosophers there, Acts 17. Mm-hmm. Uh, I won't read the, I, I, I was going to read the whole thing, but for time, let me just read the, 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 um, the main verses there. Um, okay. Verse 28, for you see within the midst of, of and in union, I'm reading my expanded translation for those folks listening. For you see, within the midst of and in union with Him, meaning God, we continuously live. Now that could be a subjunctive. It could say we could be constantly living, and we realize Paul says we were dead in trespasses and sin. So either reading there is possible in, in the spelling of the Greek verb and are constantly moved about and put into motion. Now, most translations don't bring this out, but um, the, the, the verb is in the passive voice. It's not active. We don't just move. We think we do. But this was not 
Paul's view or actually, you know, the view of those of first of the first century. So we can continuously exist or experience being. And then he says, even as certain of your poets down among you people have said, now here he's quoting a Greek poet, playwright, and now it's become scripture to us. I think that should be something to take note of. And this is what he says. You see, we are all a family of the one. Now, the one there is obviously God. We even continuously exist being a race whose source is the one. Or that could also be translated, we also are his species and offspring. We are even a family which is composed of the one and which is the one. So that's a quote of uh, Aratos uh, and also Cleanthes made the same statement. If I can just interject there, I think the, sure. the Greek word there is genia, right? We are all his yes. genia, from which we get the word gene- genealogy. Yeah, and we get our word genus from out of that too. It's, you know, comes from that. So Paul's sermon is quite clear and easily understood here in relationship of God with human beings. Um, these folks were included as being part of the family of the one and his species and offspring, a race whose source is God. It begs the question, why should, why should we be questioning this? That's such a straightforward statement. Let me just, uh, just add people something. Who are not believers. Let me just back up a little bit. That Acts 17, 26 says, God made from one man every nation of mankind Yes, to live on all the face of the earth. So that's another thing. If that, that paternity then uh, comes, at least in Paul's understanding, comes from God through Adam to to uh, to everybody, and it's yes. so it's a it's all a, a family uh, of that one. Uh, Nick, you want to add any more to that? Uh, yeah, I think I think you guys are hitting the nail on the head. This is just kind of a complimentary passage in Ephesians three. You know. Um, yes. I'm not the Bible guy here. I'll, I'll appeal to my my missions experience and and maybe some logic mostly. But this has always stuck out to me in Ephesians three. I think it was in some of your guys' notes. Um, again, kind of the context here. If we jump up to uh, verse six in Ephesians three, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers yes. of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And, it, and then kind of a more famous verse perhaps is in verse 14 and 15. For this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in, he- in heaven and on earth is named. Um, and then he goes on to talk about the, yeah. the amazing breadth and height and depth of love of Christ that surpasses, you know, that, that speaks to, again, you can yeah. theoretically say that God is not the father of all, but Paul is pretty clear that his, his love is, is, beyond conception for us to understand. And so that, to me, would be rather inclusive, um, especially if he's saying every family in heaven on earth is named uh, by this father, right? Um, so, and and I love, I love the shout out to the Gentiles here because we see, and we'll probably get into this later, but we see this whole concept played out in Romans 9 through 11, um, as well as other of Paul's writings about the inclusion, right, of both the Jews and Gentiles, i.e., yeah. the elect and then the rest of the world. 
Yes. Oh, also, uh, Jonathan, uh, I think I remember now that in Ephesians three fourteen and 15, it's, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, in the Greek is pater, from mm-hmm. whom every family, and I think that's patria. Yeah. In the Greek. So, so, so for this reason, I kneel before the pater. Yeah. yeah from, from whom every patria. Yes. Um, on heaven, in heaven and on earth, derives its name. So, um, God is the father of every of every fatherly gener of, of every um, uh, fatherly uh, generation, and then then you know that later on in Ephesians four six, then the one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, is mm-hmm. a very dramatic uh, statement yeah. from Paul uh, affirming the <clears throat> the the fatherhood of God and. This kind of gets to the idea that, you know, sometimes the idea is that God is this holy being who is so far away from us, whereas both in the Acts passage and here in Ephesians, God is near. In Acts yeah. 17, Paul yeah. wants to say, God is not far away. God is near to each one as well. Live and move and live and move and yes. having our being in God. God is near to each one of us. And here in Ephesians 4, 6, the one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, there's a <clears throat> there's a kind of nearness of the parental mm. aspect of God, I think is there as well. Yes, excellent, David. Uh, in my in my looking at this, these verses here that some both of you quoted, First uh, Corinthians fifteen twenty two comes to mind, where Paul uses Adam as being an inclusive of all mankind. Uh, we see that in Romans five twelve, as it you know. Uh, death spread from him through uh, into all all mankind, upon which situation all people sin because they're dead. They're Ephesians two one dead in trespasses and sin. But he says here, thus just as within Adam, just as within Adam, all humans keep on dying. In the same way, also within Christ, all humans will keep on being made alive, and they're. Um, I translate that as a progressive because people keep being born. Uh, so uh, anyhow, um, likewise in the same chapter in in uh, Ephesians uh, 15, verses 44 through 57, Paul speaks of Adam as being the first humanity, could breed first man, but the anthropos there can also be, just be a generic term for humanity. And um, so uh, he's, he is uh, the first humanity which bears the image of the earthly, but who will also then bear the image of the heavenly. We find in reading through those verses in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, each one in his own class, order, and so forth uh, is 1 Corinthians 15, 23, after Paul says, as an so also in Christ, will all be made alive. So, uh, yeah, this is this this language is so inclusive in in Paul especially, and if we just take it at face value and don't try to to uh, reason it away, see, well, yes, but you say, what is it saying here? What is his message all the way through there, from fifteen twenty two all the way through the end of the chapter? You know, uh, it's it's in a very inclusive language, talking to everyone. 
Okay. Nick, anything you want to add there? No, that's, that's great. Love it. Okay. I've, I've got this uh, passage, uh, Matthew 23, uh, one and, um, and then verse nine, because it in basically it's, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. So he's speaking to the crowds and to his disciples and he's giving a teaching. And then as part of that teaching, he says, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. And, and this just kind of gets to the indiscriminate way, the way that Jesus uses the term father. Yeah. When he is when he is teaching his disciples, he doesn't take pains to say, now, wait a second. You know, for those of you who are just overhearing what I'm saying, right. this just refers to my disciples. He, he is speaking to he's speaking to crowds of people. Yes. And he is teaching them about to understand that God is their father. And it's it's striking in that because one of the main teachings of Jesus, when his good news that he proclaimed was that the kingdom of God uh, was at hand. So you might think that he would have taught people to call God king. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or maybe yeah. to say, you know, God will ultimately be your judge. And so so call God holy judge. But yeah. instead, he repeatedly teaches people to think of God as father. And then when he when he encourages people to think analogically about the way God is, he encourages them to think about how human fathers who are not good even know how to give gifts to their own children. So how much more will your heavenly father who is good, who is good know how to give good gifts to his children who ask him? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That, I love how you tied that back in with what Nick brought out there beginning because understanding that relationship and all through the Old Testament, um, when God delivered Egypt as, as a, an entire group, a mixed multitude even, he, he had Moses tell uh, Pharaoh, you know, Israel is my son, my firstborn. That was a group. That was a corporate group. And they were a type of, uh, and they became the children of God. And it's like that children-fatherhood relationship is all the way through and then tucked in here and there, there is a husband-wife relationship between God and Israel. You know, find that in Hosea and things like this. This intimate relationship starts at the very beginning, very beginning. And, and, all and, well, the and then there's that, there's that blessing that, well, that Abraham is that he is supposed to, his family, that God is going to make out of Abraham a special family, which is to bless all the families of the yes. earth. So Absolutely. it's not like it's not like the family that God has through Abraham is the only family that God right. is, is responsible for. It's just saying that out of all the out of all the families that I am responsible for, I'm going to make one special family in a, that that is going to come about, and they're going to have a miraculous birth of a child, and through that family is ultimately going to come a blessing for all the families of Amen. the earth. So. Uh, all of you, the way I read that is that all of you are my children, but some of you are, I have set off in a special family to be a, a blessing to the rest of my children. Yes. yes. I mean, you think about Romans 9, right, where we have the, the perhaps the anthropomorphic language of Esau I loved, or, or Jacob I loved, and Esau yeah. I hated, right? It's that same same kind of concept where we're talking of, about election you know, God chose to use 
Jacob. He preferred to use Jacob as a vehicle of election so that the rest of the world could come to, to, to reconciliation, right? To be blessed through that family line. And I think that's just so misunderstood, especially when we don't read and kind of finalize our, our thoughts with Romans 11, you know, especially 1132. Really, the entirety of chapter 11 is just, you know, an amazing argument that kind of really ties it all together as far as how election and God's choosing of a certain line or a family is actually for the blessing of the entire world. Yeah, that I've consigned all to disobedience, that I've consigned all my children to disobedience, that I might have mercy upon all. Right. And then he uses that. He says, you know, I have some I have I have like cultivated. There's a cultivated olive tree, but I can take other olive trees that aren't cultivated. They're still olive trees, but they're not specially cultivated. I can graft those. You know, I can graft that in. So it's not that I have it's not that some are olive trees and some are not olive trees. Or some are children and not some are not children. It's Good that point. they're they're all children. They're all olive trees, but I can graft them in, and I can or, and I can decide to use some of my children for special purposes, uh, some for some special terms, some special times. Yes. Excellent. Yeah, and even children who are objects of wrath, right? Which we've all been objects of wrath. We've all been disobedient. And I love yes. Thomas Talbot, how he handles that. You know, he, he inserts, for example, Saul into the object of wrath oh, yeah. interpretation. Yes. And, then he, and then he switches to Paul when it's an object of mercy, you know. And so even as children that are wayward, rebellious, uh, prodigals, you know, God uses that. Jonathan, you want to take us a little further? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm going to go to First uh, Corinthians 8, 6 for more kind of inclusive language for uh, including all within coming from out of God. And, you know, if if we come from out of God, that's a different thing from just being molded and created as a, a clay vessel and then having his breath blown into us to become. It's Paul takes it, I believe, uh, to a much more extensive thing here. In 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Paul says to to us, and this I'll just say, and it's a, the uh, dative case, it can have a number of prepositions, so I conflate this in my translation to offer all these nuances. To us, or in us, or for us, or with us, there is one God, the Father, from out of the midst of whom, that's an expanded uh, rendering of the, the preposition ek, from out of the midst of whom, is the whole, the all, or all things, and we into the midst of him. It's a preposition of, of motion proceeding into the midst of him, out of him, and into the midst of him. Even one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom is the whole, or all things, same same word. Uh, compare John 1, 3 and, as, as the Logos coming through all creation, or Colossians 1.16, we might get to that. And we, through means of him, uh, he presents the same idea back in, in Romans 11 that you guys were both just talking about. And one of my favorite verses has for a long time been 11.36, which gives to me a cosmic overview of the whole thing in the inclusiveness of the language. There are three prepositions 
used in this in the first part of this verse. Uh, ek out of out of the midst of uh, dia through through the midst of and ace in its basic meaning is into the midst of uh, sometimes just translated to but it shows the circularity of of uh, what has happened in God as I see it as God's plan of the ages uh, so it says from uh, from out of the mid and okay and, and he is before all things or prior to all things um, and all people here the spelling of all uh, serves a dual function of both being in the uh, uh, masculine which would be people or the neuter which would be things normally it's just saying all things in a way all things is almost more inclusive but because the gospel is primarily about people and the fact that it functions as a a masculine there i i put in there yeah. and all people and and you know sometimes in the bible people are things too yes that's true very that's very true david <laughs> so and the whole has been placed together and now i'm i'm sorry i i skipped into the next reading um from out of the midst of him and through the midst of him and into the midst of him are all things he is the source or the father of all things and all people and then I, I moved into Colossians 1.17. So he is before uh, all things and all people and the whole, meaning everything, all things, all things have been placed together and now continue to jointly stand or stand cohesively to, to have a co-standing within the midst of and in union with him. That is such an inclusive verse of saying, well, that's where Adam came from. That's where Abraham came from, Isaac, and, and all of Israel. But all other peoples came from out of him, passed through the midst of him, as we talked about being in him in Acts uh, 17, 28. And the the end in view is back into him. Uh, so I'll pause there for comments on those. Well, had you had you already uh, quoted that Hebrews twelve nine passage? I, I do not think I did. No. Okay. Well, that that Hebrews twelve nine. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected yes. them. Shall we not not much more be subject to the Father of spirits yes. and live? And yes. so that's another way of you know paternity that God is the Father of spirits. Amen. Yes. Yes. That's 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 so true. So true. All right. Well, I think we're kind of, uh, I think we're kind of winding up. But one of the things that this, this, uh, as far as the positively God being a parent, is that um, is that parents do have uh, obligations uh, to their children. And uh, in First Timothy five five eight, Paul warns, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And Andrew Heronich writes, one wonders whether the same implications could be made of God who declares, behold, all souls are mine, Ezekiel 18.4. Mm -hmm. And then Heronich asks the question, is God worse than an unbeliever? Does he care for his own? And I just bring that up because sometimes I'll hear, I'll, I will hear people say that God has no obligation towards us. God does not, God does not owe us anything. Mm -hmm. And I just think that if that's a strange 
kind of sentiment for Christians to have that, that as a matter of fact, God being a good parent, the ultimate good parent, would have the highest of obligations towards us and the best of intentions uh, for us in this creation. I, I'd like to go uh, before passing on to the next session, uh, if there's time yeah. uh, here. Um, Matthew 6 brings up one of the same things as like Matthew 23, 9, uh, where uh, in, in verse 8, uh, he said, Jesus says, so then you folks should not be like or made to resemble them for it follows that before the occasion for you to ask, and he was talking about scribes and Pharisees, um, ask him, uh, God, your father has seen and knows what things you continuously have need of. And then he moves in, therefore, be continuously thinking and speaking toward having goodness or ease and well-being is how I translate, praying. And he says, he teaches them, and this is, he is speaking to a multitude, once again, on the Sermon on the Mount. It was not just his disciples, it was a multitude. And he says, pray our Father. I mean, one of the most well-known things throughout the world is the this prayer, our Father who art in heaven. He says, pray this way. And um, in a uh, Again, in Matthew 4, 25 and 5, 1, uh, there were multitudes present when he had these words. And uh, uh, he, he, I alluded to this before where he says, are you folks not exceedingly carrying through and to be of more consequent than the birds that he's talking about, where he says they, uh, they're, uh, their heavenly father is uh, constantly feeds and nourishes them. And then I, I want to go back to a, a few, just a handful of short uh, Old Testament re uh, references here from the Hebrew Bible, uh, as, as addressing Israel as a whole. Malachi asked the rhetorical question, is there not one father to all of us? And I mean, at that time, Israel, uh, during the time of Malachi, they were, in, in, they were not uh, even all... <laughs> following Yahweh, a lot of them were getting into uh, uh, idol worship of, of the surrounding nations and so forth. Uh, did not one, then, then he says, is not one father to us all. And then he says, did not one God create us? So like you were bringing out earlier, David, he's pairing fatherhood with creation there. Because this is what like God that. is, is, is there not, one fa one father to us all did not one God create form create us all. We find Paul in various letters using three men from Israel's history to uh, to be representative of God's plan of the ages, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. For the first one is Adam, and we find that in for, uh, Romans five twelve through twenty one, and I pointed out First Corinthians fifteen. Then there was Abraham in Romans 4 and Galatians 3 and 4. And then there's Israel as an ethnic group. And as uh, Nick, you've pointed out, Romans 9 through Romans 11. So speaking to of corporate Israel, we find in Isaiah 64, 7. Yet, Lord, this is Isaiah praying uh, to, to 
to the Lord. Yet, Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hands. Once again, we have fatherhood and creation of, of us as, as, as being something on, as a potter. Uh, Isaiah saw God as the father of all of Israel. Uh, the same author said in 63 uh, verse 16, For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer. So these were people that were at that point outside of, of being considered uh, by mainline, shall we say mainline Israel, um, mostly mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, Judea in, in that sense. They rejected the people of, of the northern kingdom and so forth. Um, so, um, and, and in Psalm 68, 5 through 6, sing to the Lord, praise his name, exalt the rider of the clouds, rejoice before him whose name is the Lord. Father of the fatherless, defender of the widows, God in his holy abode. In Psalm 82, verse 6, I myself said, and this is the Lord, you folks are God's Elohim and are all sons of the Most High. And that's a controversial verse about who he's talking to. I maintain it's Israel because Jesus gave the, the interpretation of that, said he said that, he quotes this psalm, he said that, to the people to whom the word of the Lord came. That was Israel and the prophets. You are Elohim. In other words, you're of, it's like what Paul said. You're of, the, you're of the race of God. You know, you are children of God. Chil- a, a child of God means you're part of God's family. You're part of who God is. And we've, people have shunned for this thing. Oh, you're making claims that you're something that you, you really aren't. And that's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees were doing to Jesus when he brought this verse up. He's saying, have not said you are gods. He quotes that. Mm-hmm. Um, God addresses these um, as, the assembly of, of gods in Psalm 82.1. And I just went across this, my notes, I'm thinking back. And recall Exodus 4.22, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Uh, therefore, they were metaphorically gods as being children of God, as a part of God's family. And, and the metaphor speaks of a reality that we might not be able to comprehend right now any more than we can really comprehend who and what God is. You know, we just are aware and we believe, we experience. But um, just because it's a metaphor, it stands for a reality that's, that exists there. And Deuteronomy... Yes, uh, with that, um, with that passage in um, in uh, John's Gospel, the, the summary that I kind of take of it is that uh, Jesus seems to be pointing out to his accusers that they had come to think of themselves as godlike because God's word or logos had been entrusted to them. The point being that the line between God and themselves was already not as distinct as they might make it seem. To put it positively, Jesus seemed to sense a very close, familiar relationship between God and humanity. Okay. Um, so I appreciate you. I appreciate you bringing that up. What I'd like to do right now is to take a little bit of a a little bit of break, a little bit of a break, and then pick this back up with the uh, scriptures that that people might think 
serve to sort of point in the other direction. Would that be okay? That's absolutely fine, David. All right, let's uh, let's switch gears now and let's ask the question: Why might someone feel that there isn't biblical warrant uh, for this idea that all are not uh, God's children? I know that Nick, that you uh, you said that you he had studied with a a Calvinist friend who had had brought up this idea. So certainly we can understand that that there might be Christians who have this idea because they look at certain verses of Scripture which do. Uh, seem to sort of contraindicate that maybe the only people who really are God's children are the ones who have believed in and received Jesus in in some way. So let's look at those verses together. And what I, I guess somebody could conclude, well, maybe the Bible is just inconsistent. Uh, I'm What I'm hoping that we can get to is a way to understand that while there is a sense in the Bible that all people are God's children, there's also a sense that that there are some of God's children who are who are actually behaving like what they are, and there are even some of God's children who have been who have been selected out, especially in an elect kind of way to do a special kind of purpose. But anyway, so that's just kind yeah. of anticipating where I think we might be going. But I thought we could go through some of these. Uh, these verses that seem to argue against the idea that all are God's children and then, and then talk with them. And so Jonathan, why don't you uh, lead the way here? Okay, David. Um, one of the verses that uh, can seem to present a different view is uh, Luke six thirty-five. 35. Uh, Jesus says, in any case, be continuously loving your enemies and be constantly doing good and also be habitually lending while expecting nothing back. Then your wage and reward will continue being much, and you folks will continue or will become sons of the Most High. If we take this verse all just on its own like that, it it sounds like, whoa, uh, almost like the law, that you've got to do these things. You've got to do this work to become sons of the Most High. Uh, But... um, we find and we find the same idea expressed in Matthew 5 9, where we are told that the peacemakers will be called right. sons of God. What I uh, suggest here and posit is that these examples show the metaphorical use of the term sons in the sense that one's actions embody and display the quality and character of God. It's the same sort of use in a negative way that Jesus talked about uh, James and John being sons of thunder. Didn't mean that thunder was their father. They had the quality and character that you would say. And so um, this same type of symbolic rhetorical usage is found in John 8. And we might have touched on that uh, where, you know, um, in verse 39, uh, the Jews say back to him, our father is Abraham. And then he says, if you folks are Abraham's children, be continually uh, doing and performing Abraham's deeds. Uh, other manuscripts read, if you folks were Abraham's children, were you ever doing Abraham's works? As a question. Um, now, now, and then he said, so now proceed in, to kill me. Or that could be as a question or presented otherwise, now you are continually seeking to kill me. 
And then he says, you folks habitually do your father's works or deeds, actions. Therefore, they said to him, we ourselves are not born out of prostitution. We have one father, God. So that's that was a Judean's perception there of themselves. Uh, therefore, the uh, his audience, the probably the Pharisees and, uh, of the Jews and, and perhaps scribes, I forget particularly, says, we ourselves were not born out of prostitution. We have God, and we have one Father, God. So it, what I note here is note the perception of the Judeans about themselves. They thought they were, had Abraham as their father, and that equaled having God as their father. Jesus says to him in the next verse, if, you were, if, if God were your father, you folks would have been uh, loving and uh, loving me and accepting me. So here Jesus is using the character uh, aspect of meaning of the word father. He's, he's saying you would have been acting like your father and you would have been loving me. Then in ver the next verse he says, <clears throat> how is it that you folks consistently do not understand the matter of my discourse or the way I am speaking when, when you're saying, why don't you understand or why don't you understand what I'm saying? He says, because you presently have no power and continue unable to keep on hearing my word. From out of, uh, you folks in, in particular are from out of your source and the word is father there, can also be your ancestor who casts something through humans. Now, I've translated there, uh, or uh, the word normally translated devil, which is uh, diablos, which means to cast something through. Uh, you're of the father who was that adversary is another way. The word devil is sometimes translated as, as an adversary in various ways the one thrusting through someone. Um, now, uh, to be, oh, I'm sorry, you're habitually wanting to be constantly doing your father's passionate cravings. Uh, that one was existing, being a murderer from the beginning. All right. And he did not stand firm or continued not taking a stand within the truth. The truth is not within him or centered in him. Whenever he would be speaking the lie, he is continually speaking from out of his own thoughts, perceptions, so forth, because he is a liar and the father of it. So this passage is really speaking, in my sense, almost apocalyptically, uh, very generally uh, symbolically, as far as them being a father, uh, the devil being their father, or one who casts something through, which is a literal meaning of that word, diablos, an adversary. He said, you're your father, the adversary. Who was the adversary? I suggest that Jesus is referencing, because he ties it in with a liar, and a, a, was the father of the lies, 
who is the first one that we really find lying to God uh, when when it uh, I think I suggest this is Cain that he was both a liar and a murderer uh, he he God asked where's your where's your brother you know and he mm-hmm. he lies by saying well however he says am I my brother's keeper and so forth he's basically saying I don't know he's deferring he's basically lying and he was a murderer Jesus ties this in in this passage saying you're wanting to kill me now in in Matthew 23 hold on hold on just a second really quickly that John 8 passage there because that's a really important one it is um, uh, because uh, that's where Jesus is saying to those who are against him uh, that your your father is the deceiver or the father of lies you know right. Most people uh, translate that. Most translations say that, you, you know, um, Satan or the devil. Uh, I just want to read here. Uh, I was looking at, again, I was looking at what Andrew and Andrew Hurondish's book. He has a nice section on this. I'll just read it. He says, there are several considerations in order. Firstly, Jesus is here speaking of a subset of a subset. He is speaking directly to those Jews of first century Palestine who, who sought to kill him, not of all Jews, and certainly not of all men. Right. The point he is trying to make is that children imitate their forebears. Thus, one is a child of the one he imitates. Are there times when believers can't imitate the devil and his desires? Certainly, and in such moments they are carrying out his will as opposed to God's. To isolate this verse from the rest of the passage and create a theology out of it is highly irresponsible. Would yes. they also assume that Jabel... Genesis four twenty to 21, who was said to be the father of all who live in tents, and Jubal, who is said to be the father of all who play the lyre and the harp, were the literal fathers of such people? Of course not. Rather, such language implies exactly. that these men are the pioneers in their respective fields. In the same way, Satan is not a literal father of anyone. Rather, those who do evil follow in his footsteps. Exactly. It's a metaphorical... So, Symbolic use use of the phrase fatherhood of that, yeah. and this was how they thought of things, and that's the way they described them. Yeah, and if you like the 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 Barnabas, but was a son of encouragement, exactly. And so, so that was the same kind of thing. It was a kind of an adjectival way of talking about oh how you're acting, you know, exactly. and it could be taken positively. So. So to say Barnabas was the son of encouragement didn't mean that encouragement was somehow the father of Barnabas. It meant that he was acting like an encouraging person. And to be a son, to be a son of God, then in that sense, is to be acting like acting like the heavenly father acts. It's an imitative. you, You are. Yeah, you're really being that some some of God's children are acting like. God is their father. They're acting like something else. Uh, some someone else is their father. They're not act. Yeah. They're not acting the way they should be acting. Nick, I wanted you to jump in a little bit here and get some of your thoughts. Yeah, I I resonate with both of you guys. I think you're bringing up an important an important point and just kind of a sub uh, a related point that I would bring to the table is a passage like Romans eight, where. You know, we're coming off the heels of Romans 7, where Paul is the, the classic struggle, the battle between the flesh, uh, essentially between the flesh, the things of the flesh and the things of the spirit, that he picks up that same kind of um, 
train of thought in Romans 8 where, you know, if we have our minds set on the things of the flesh, that is hostility toward, toward God, and we cannot submit to God's law. And we, we all as believers, right, we, we have that battle, right? Just because we're filled with the Spirit and in Christ doesn't mean that we yield to, to the Spirit all the time. And so he goes on to say in verse, um, verses 12 through 17, you know, a lot of times as a non-Christian reconciliationalist, I would appeal to this passage right here as proof that um, God was only the father of those who were in Christ. Um, and so we see here for all who are led by the spirit, this is verse 14 of God or sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, father, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children than heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And I think about what Paul's trying to say here, and I think about Galatians 4, where we see in the first verse Paul's discussion about sons and heirs. And he, and he starts the argument here with verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And goes on to say, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So I just see this line of reasoning that, that we actually are children. We, If you pick it up again in verse 1 of chapter 4, as a child, we're no different than a slave. We've simply not grown into maturity and into the full office, if you will, of our sonship. And I would argue that that happens when you, when you put your faith and belief in the reconciling work of Christ. There's a certain um, Jerry Boschman on his hopebeyondhell.net says that adoption uh, in the New Testament does not carry the same meaning that it has in our modern American culture, making one a legal member of the family. Instead, it points to a position of status and authority as one who has come of age. And so I, I see the same theme here in Romans 8 and Galatians 4, where we're not so much talking about, are we will, really children of God or not? Because it's clear that we are in these passages. We're more or less talking about how have we grown in our understanding, in our maturity as sons and daughters of God. Similar to a bar mitzvah, right? When a, a Jewish boy comes of age uh, at 13, we all know that he is uh, belongs to that family. He's by by definition he's a male, right? Genetically speaking, but there's something significant about that age, which signifies his entering into a different level, if you will, of maturity or understanding of his sonship. And so that's 
those are things that that come to mind when I read some of these passages that are classically used to combat sonship. And I think Jonathan, you and I talked about that a little bit on the phone yesterday, even so. We did. Yes. Yeah. Do you want to add do you want to add to that, Jonathan? Well, I I'm I'm I concur with with you, Nick, on this. Um, these passages, like where it says those that are led by in Romans 8, 14, those that are led by the spirit of the sons of God. Uh, I do not see that as, as defining the qualifications for being in this relationship with God. It's more of a descriptive of a new relationship with God, like just the idea of being born again. Hmm. Uh, uh, being born again means again, you know, uh, Jesus said in, in John 3 uh, that um, to Nicodemus, he says, who all of those were considered to be children of God, except I like what you brought out uh, earlier, David, about it was talking about the behavior and the character. And be, being of uh, a child of God or son of God, you know, of, of our father, it it is used in, in numerous ways, and we need to to consider the context of how that is being used. Uh, is it being used of the character, like like you brought out, David? Mm-hmm. Or, or um, is it being used ontologically as something, something very different? Now, I believe there's an ontological aspect of, of uh, our actually existing being children of God through the new birth, but it is just like both of you have been uh, alluding to, these are different phases or stages of uh, our relationship with God. Uh, They're called to be, it's just like the idea of being joined to the vine, if we can skip to John 15. Uh, Those those who are, are, are joined to the vine, are like his disciples, those who are actively following him, picking up their cross and following him, and so forth. And they have a function of what the vine was there for. It was to produce fruit. It was to produce the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. And basically, we we could say to produce the image of God as Jesus did. Now, that is a, a function of, uh, of the body of Christ to the world to, to say, well, you are children of God, but you need to come in to be joined into the Christ to move into the life of, of Christ. And uh, this is where uh, I think if we tie this idea back to Romans 5, or First Corinthians 15, where all will be made alive in Christ, but the next verse says everyone in their own order or class. It is just like being born. Not everybody is born the same time. And being born, you, you, you don't have anything to do with your own birth. It's not a decision you make. It's a decision of the parents. So um, Paul uses, and, and all of them use, this idea of like um, adoption, which is literally a son placement, huyothesia, placement as a son, or that can be turned a placement within the son. 
they were to be to to function like Israel did to the rest of the world to be the light. Jesus said, "You are the light of the world," you know, and so um, he was the light of the world to them, and they were to do the works that he did and to spread the light throughout. So these these aspects of being children of God are used in more than one function. So we need to ask, what are the functions uh, of a particular passage that seems to say something different? In Romans 9, 8, and Nick, you've referred to this section from 9 to 11. In 9, 8, he says, the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. Now, was he meaning the Judeans there? Or was he meaning something that is of the old covenant? There's something new. You know, if, and here we bring in the concept that Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 5 of being the new creation. The old things are passed away. What old things? It was the old covenant and the old way of relating. Something new has come. Hebrews says we have a, a new priesthood. We have a new thing. Paul says we are now the temple of God, or we're, we're born from the Jerusalem who is above in, in Galatians 4, which, which says was in contrast to the Jerusalem of the Judeans in, on the natural or on the flesh realm. So in the new creation, they're making a new, uh, in the new birth, the regeneration and so forth, the resurrection life is something different than when we were all dead in trespasses and sin. In Ephesians 2, Ephesians 6, he is, 5 and 6, he's raised us up and seated us together in the heavenly places. So that's living right here, right now, in a way that is different from the other. And uh, so there, so these passages that Paul is talking about here, like in, in Romans 8 and so forth, it's speaking about something that is different. The new has come. And mm -hmm. in fact, he's uh, going on in Ephesians 2.15. It says he's made of the two, meaning circumcision, uncircumcision, the, uh, the Judeans and the nations, as one new humanity. He's broken down the division. This is the new realm into which we are born in the second birth. And so it's like having being born again of the same father, but to another higher level to where we're now that in spirit, where the others are, we're children in flesh. If I haven't said too much. Yeah, I think that's that. interesting. What what I would okay. like to do, what I'd kind of like to do now is just kind of offer some summary statements. I've got a what I like to do is uh, offer a summary statement and then Nick pass it to you to see if anything you have to add. And then we'll let Jonathan have the concluding word. Does that sound okay? Yep. Yes. Okay. So what I take from this is that on the one hand, God is the father of all. On the other hand, God fathers a special family in order to bless all of the families of the earth. So in Genesis twelve three, we read in you speaking to Abraham, I will bless all the families of the earth, which lines up with Ephesians 3, 14 to 15. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So then later, Christ comes, and he talks about 
this family of God which exists to bless everyone. His mother and brothers and sisters are the ones who do God's will. In Matthew 25, he is concerned about how his brothers and sisters will be treated by the nations. Later on, Paul will speak about how God has brought some of the Gentiles within this special family of God and grafted them in, using a metaphor of a cultivated olive tree having a wild olive branch grafted into it. And so these Gentiles who are grafted in become children of Abraham in this sense. And like the Vacation Bible School song says it, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. So, <laughs> so God is the Father of all, and all are God's children. But among God's children, God calls forth in miraculous ways children are, who are to represent God and be a special blessing to the rest of God's children. So that's kind of the way I, I try that. to. That's kind of the way I try to put it together. Nick, what, what thoughts would you have? That's beautiful, David. I, I was hoping we were going to all break into into yeah. song and then that. <laughs> Father Abraham. <laughs> Maybe that's how we should finish the episode. Huh? <laughs> you know, for me, experientially, I'll let you guys speak to the theological side of things, but I want to bring up one more thing to kind of offer as my summary statement. You know, when we were working overseas, and I've discuss this with several other workers that are currently overseas right now and that are actually ultimate reconciliationists. But before I came into that belief, as workers with those in the Arab world, it was interesting. We had this term for them that was oddly familial and oddly, uh, just odd in the context of all of this. And that was cousins. We would call our neighbors, our friends, um, if you will, from Hagar, the line of Hagar, we, we called them cousins. And that just always, it was always fascinating to me um, as a worker who believed that God would eventually cut off a large majority of those that he created and consign them either to eternal conscious torment or to be annihilated. It was just almost as if our conscience was speaking to us subconsciously. It was almost a Freudian slip that kind of spoke to a deeper truth, a deeper reality that we really believed that we were all part of the same family, that we would call them cousins, right? And so that kind of ties in as well, uh, I suppose, or I could tie that in with my illustration about the French parents, right? There was something innate in them that um, tugged at their heart that they could live out this god created image within them to be a father and a mother to their own children. And so I, I think experientially and logically, um, at least for me, and I believe all of us on this call, we can see that God is truly the father of all and that he is using certain children as agents of reconciliation and others as agents of wrath and destruction. He's using all of us as his children to bring about his good and perfect purposes for the cosmos. And that is for him to be all in all as we've hit, hit on with first Corinthians 15. Um, so that would be my, my kind of um, summary statement. Um, yeah. So there it is. <laughs> okay. All right. I like that. Okay. Jonathan, we'll pass it off to you. Let you to have the sort okay. of the final say. You know, David and Nick, both of you, I, I love your, your summations, and I re totally concur with both of them. Uh, 
to me, the last thing I, I would say, you know, Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 quotes uh, Leviticus 26 saying, um, I will continue being their God and they will continue being my people. And then he quote, quotes Second um, Samuel seven fourteen, where he says, I will proceed being a father to you and you will proceed in being sons and daughters in me or to me, for me, and so forth. These two quotes that Paul throws into 2 Corinthians 6 from the Old Testament as examples shows us that the context and the kind of application of the term children of God, sons of God, are vitally important in our coming to understand our relationship with God. In the concept of children of God being used, is it being used in a covenant way like it was with Israel? Uh, is it speaking of a person's quality or character or behavior? Or is it speaking of an existential reality um, in an ontological expression of who we really are, such as we touched on in Acts 17, 28? through 29a God can be our father in the first two God can be our father in the first two categories that is in covenant relationship or in um, quality and character and so forth but he really is our fa the father of all humanity in the third category and we further submit that individually God really is our father when we're born back up again into a higher place, again in him, are born again, as John 3, 3 and 7 say. And my final thing is, is uh, quoting the verse, David, that you quoted earlier on, the early part of the broadcast, Matthew 23, 9, with the idea that Jesus was speaking to the crowds, the multitudes, many of whom did not follow him or went away and so forth. Uh, he said, and further, you folks should not call anyone on earth your father, because you see, one is your father, the heavenly one. And I think that really says it very clearly there, hmm. that who everyone, the crowds, those who follow Christ, those who not, are children of God. But he has a, new, a secondary, you might say, movement into being born again for a purpose, for being uh, the body of Christ in the earth that ministers his image to everyone to where they can come alive to that all in their own time. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Jonathan, for all of your um, uh, your work and and uh, looking into those uh, Greek words and verbs and, and how those are all put together. And Nick, for your... Uh, reflections about your experience as a missionary. I hope that the conversation that, that we've had will be helpful for people who are who are working through this and ultimately that everybody can feel that, yes, um, I am God's child, and I also want to reflect the image of God in my life and in whatever way I can be a part of being a blessing to everyone else. So I appreciate mm -hmm. everything that you've had to say. David, can I just add one other short word that Linda wrote down on a piece of paper here? Sure. Where Jesus said, I, I came to show you the Father, or mm. 
he came to show us. And that is our mission too. We are here to show the world who their father is. It's amazing. Yeah, thank you. All right, thank you guys. And uh, look forward to the next time we get to visit together. Look Thanks, forward David. to it, Nick, it's been great. You too, Jonathan. We'll talk to you guys later. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.